we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? It is summer, and what better to do with summertime than focus on getting in shape and getting your health in check. Best way to do that is with Angie Niska at Rise Nutrition, who sponsors all of these wonderful Jesus Never Ran podcasts. You can find her on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That is Rise with a Z. This week on the podcast, we have the former chair of the White House Council on Faith and Neighborhood Partnerships, activist, pastor, author of the book, Who Stole My Bible, Reverend Jennifer Butler. So I am the Reverend Jennifer Butler, and I am the CEO of Faith and Public Life, which is a 50,000-member network all over the United States, and we are working for justice and for the common good. We're revitalizing the progressive faith voice. And I am a Presbyterian pastor. I am also a mom of a 17-year-old. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And my faith journey has really been about discovering the Jesus who said, I came to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed. And that is not the Jesus that I heard preached growing up. So I've been on a lifelong journey to find that Jesus, to walk with that Jesus, and uh, to figure out what that means for my life. And it's been tremendously exciting, sometimes agonizing, but mostly exciting and empowering. You alluded to the faith that you learned about growing up. Dig a little bit deeper into that and share with us what you did grow up in as far as faith goes. I was in a United Methodist church growing up, and it was probably an 8,000-member church. You know, this is the Bible Belt. You know, really was uh, the center of our family life. We were the kinds of folks who were in church three times a week, you know, Sunday and then Wednesday night supper where they had these great desserts and I had a sweet tooth. So I always looked forward to that. I participated in the sports program, singing in the choir, the whole nine yards. And I was interested in going deeper in my faith. I mean, I was really intrigued early on with Jesus as a young person. And I remember asking these questions that no one could answer, you know, questions about how did the Bible get here? You know, I I got my first Bible with my name inscribed on it. I was so excited. I opened it up and there were actual photographs in it of, you know, what we call the Holy Land. But I was like, well, how did we get these photographs? Because Jesus lived a long time ago, right? Like, so as a six-year-old or whatever, you're trying to put these things together. But nobody could tell me how the Bible came to us and how it was written. Nobody, you know, could answer the fact that like, 
the city was going through school integration. You know, it was, um, we had decided to integrate public schools with a Supreme Court decision in the 1950s. That didn't happen in all reality in Atlanta until the 70s because white Southerners were organizing to prevent it from happening. And so I was going to one of the, the newly integrated Atlanta public schools, and yet I never heard about the sin of racism in my all white. Methodist Church. I read how Jesus related to the outcast of his society and brought them in and was penalized for that. And yet I didn't hear about anyone in our church challenging the status quo. And so those things didn't add up. And it really sent me on the journey, faith journey, to try to figure out how to put all these pieces together. I can relate to that as well. There was a point a little bit later in my life than in your life where issues of justice became the most important thing to my faith journey. And I was very, very discouraged by the lack of that that I was seeing around me. In my case, it was in the evangelical church. But if I think back and I grew up Catholic, I also didn't learn about any of that growing up Catholic. And you've probably heard stories like this before, but I grew up going to a Catholic school and on the wall that when you walked out of the classroom, there was this larger than life-size picture of Jesus, who is this beautiful blue-eyed, blonde-haired, <laughs> white Jesus. And so I, I remember the day when I realized, wait a second, even that is is so screwed up, you know? And so I love that that was a, a pinnacle for your faith journey as well. So when you were starting to realize those things and starting to connect Jesus to justice, how did you move forward then at that point? Well, I started to do a lot of reading on my own, including reading the Bible for, for myself. But I really didn't have the words, you know, um, theology is faith-seeking understanding, right? And so, I didn't have the words and I didn't have the community around me that would give me confidence in what I believed. And so, I remember going off to college and, you know, really wanting to participate in, in fellowship groups and joining one. And they gave me those, one of the four spiritual laws tracks, you know, and I damned if I could never memorize those four spiritual laws that I was supposed to share with people. And I realized now I couldn't share them because that wasn't the Jesus I, I knew. You know, I could talk to them about what does it really mean to bring good news to someone who is oppressed by economic inequality. I could talk about that Jesus, that good news Jesus, to welcome the outcast. But I, I, I couldn't share these four spiritual laws. And so, to some degree, I was like, oh, I'm kind of a bad Christian, you know, but I, you know, still struggling and grappling with this. I was at the College of William and Mary and the Southern Baptist Student Union, Baptist Student Union, but their Southern Baptist was actually the group that most engaged that Jesus that I was coming to know. I would call it social justice today, but they called it mission. So, I ended up serving as a Baptist missionary to the Eastern Shore with uh, migrant farm workers actually. And I learned a heck of a lot doing that. And the campus chaplain introduced me to my first woman minister. I didn't grow up Baptist, mind you. Like I said, I was, I was Methodist, but I joined this campus fellowship group because they seemed to know something about the Jesus that I was reading about on my own. So, it, it goes to show, you know, that you find these pockets of true Christianity, what I now understand to be, you know, true gospel Christianity everywhere you go, and you never know where you're going to find them. The Southern Baptist, you know, at this very moment, I guess they just concluded their Southern Baptist Convention and narrowly missed electing a hard right candidate to run that denomination. 
you know, and so they've shifted a lot today, but um, I'm grateful to that, that chaplain. You know, in college, I met two friends, one from Kenya, one from Cameroon, and they really challenged me in my faith and my understanding of the world. They inspired me to join the Peace Corps. I spent some time in Central America, and I learned that everything I had been taught about Central America and socialism and communists at our back door, all of that was wrong. And the politics of that were really messed up. And I learned about liberation theology. And so then I set out to go to seminary, and that is where I was able to study Black theology, feminist theology, and really get more language to attach to this Jesus that I had learned about essentially on my own. Now, you use the phrase liberation theology. Some of us from conservative spaces may have heard that and... As we heard it, it was viewed as a negative thing in a lot of conservative circles. So do you mind just defining, when you say liberation theology, what are you talking about? Sure. Well, maybe I'll just start straight with scripture. So the Hebrew word that we translate salvation is uh, Yeshua, right? It's where we get Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua. The root word of that in Hebrew is literally, a lot of Hebrew words are farm terms, right? It was an agricultural society. They're very earthy. And so that term literally means to open up, to make wide, or to make spacious, you know, to make free, to set free. And if we look at scripture, the, the sort of pivotal story of the Hebrew scriptures is the story of Exodus, uh, leading people out of slavery in Egypt. So lead, leading people out of Literally, uh, the Hebrew people are described as being pressed down. And that's an agricultural term that's usually applied to like making wine. You can picture people like stepping on the grapes, mashing those down. So people are being pressed down, oppressed, and God leads them out, sets them free, Yeshua, salvation, liberation. God saves them, liberates them from being pressed down and being oppressed. I love how like tactile those Hebrew words are, right? Then uh, Jesus, New Testament, opens up with the song of Mary, and Mary echoes Miriam's song, Miriam, the sister of Moses, echoes that song and says, you know, God is going to cast the tyrants from their thrones, horse and rider thrown into sea. She says, you know, my son is going to do this, and she's echoing what Moses did, leading people out of slavery in Egypt, and Jesus is this new Moses that is going to set people free, free from what? From being enslaved oppressed by a tyrant like Pharaoh. In Jesus' time, it was Caesar. It was Rome. So that's what liberation means. It means we, you know, as Christians are called to create communities that eradicate any form of oppression so that human beings can realize the full dignity that God has created us to have. That gives me goosebumps. You're just talking about it. All right. Now you have written a book called Who Stole My Bible? And one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you in person is because this is the space when people are coming out of a conservative background, specifically, whether that's a more mainline background or evangelical background, this is the first place that gets really sticky because there's so much emphasis put on the capital T truth of the Bible as if there's just this one right way to believe it. And if you don't believe, I mean, talk about the Southern Baptists, they really get that. They do. Well. <laughs> and so a, a lot of people I've spoken with literally just set aside the Bible and don't pick it up for sometimes years after they go through kind of a deconstruction phase or they leave their their church community or whatever. 
And your book is called Who Stole My Bible? Because in a sense, this capital T truth way of understanding the Bible is a stolen version of these beautiful historic scriptures that we have. And so I love that you've written this book and I love that you've written it in the context of justice as well. And you take a completely different spin on it than anything anybody has heard. I guarantee it. So first and foremost, everybody listening right now, pause the podcast and go purchase your copy of Who Stole My Bible by Jennifer Butler. So share with us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book. Well, I almost left the church after going through my training in seminary to become a pastor. It was a real bummer, right? Because I became disillusioned with all of Christianity just as I was about to like graduate, right? So what do you do with that? And you were Um, warned about it, right? I remember reading that in the book that somebody, a family member warned you that that was going to happen. You told them no, and then it happened. (laughs) So my dad and I, who were very close, uh, we, you know, had a Christian journey together and I was a born again Christian in high school, mainly mind you, because I was also terrified of potential nuclear Armageddon, you know, humanity, (laughs) like that was, that was sin to me, right? That we had this capacity and willingness to potentially destroy the planet. But anyway, so I, you know, my my dad, his fr- best friend warned him, your daughter is going to Princeton Seminary and she is going to lose her faith or worse, become some sort of heretic, you know? And yeah, that kind of happened, but mainly not because of what I was taught, what I, what I was taught in terms of biblical hermeneutics and criticism and really looking at how the Bible is wrote, written in its context and, and how that can deepen our faith, it was the hypocrisy of the institution that really disillusioned me. The fact that I was stalked actually while in seminary, I experienced sexual violence and the administration didn't know what to do with that and didn't take steps to protect me. I had to figure out how to protect myself and nearly left seminary because of it. You know, there was um, an anti-LGBTQ movement that the president of the seminary then endorsed. There was all of this just hypocrisy in the air. And I, I began to think, well, our, our institutions are so damaged that I just cannot be a part of this anymore. But then, you know, I tell the story in the book. And there were a couple of moments like this. I, I took my first job working for the Presbyterian Church at the United Nations, and I was doing global human rights work. And I was working specifically on women's rights globally. There was an enormous movement to pass international law that, that would protect women. And at the same time, we saw the rise of the Taliban. This was back when nobody was really paying attention to religious extremism in that way until 9-11. But I was seeing the impact you know, of um, conservative Christianity in my own life, but especially also in the lives of women around the world. I was also working on the global HIV AIDS pandemic and uh, religion was being used to stigmatize people living with AIDS so that we couldn't address the pandemic and people were dying because of that. So at one point I was at the UN and I was uh, fostering conversations around religion and human rights. And we had uh, ceded some of our event space to Muslim women, women living under Muslim law to speak about what they were going through and uh, I'll never forget because it was actually a chapel at the UN where we um, there was this big stone altar and we didn't have room for a, a table for the panelists. So we just cleared the altar and we put all these Muslim women at the, the altar, which was just absolutely beautiful. For me, it is kind of like a new way of looking at communion and sacred space, right? Bringing these women into the space and, and giving up our space so that they can be at the front and sitting around the communion table. And as they were speaking, 
there was a big commotion at the door and one of the women panelists faltered. And she looked very nervous. She looked over at the door. And what I saw over there was the uh, Saudi Arabian security detail, big guys making a lot of commotion, trying to force their way into the room, which was standing room only. The women in the room were so savvy, they immediately stood up and started applauding the panelists. And that had two effects. One, it encouraged the women. They started to smile and they kind of like, you know, all that terror went out of their bodies. But secondly, it blocked the door. So these guys really, truly now could not get in and they had to leave. And then the panelists were able to continue. And I thought to myself at that moment, um, if these women can claim their voice and claim their faith in this way, then I sure as hell ought to be able to do that too. Why am I giving up my faith because of the hypocrisy of those around me rather than reclaiming it and teaching people what it's all about? And from then on, I was able to see how scripture, you know, I met a woman from South Africa, Nantando Hadebi, a scholar who was using the Bible to empower women to go out and address the HIV AIDS pandemic. They would actually literally do testimonies about living with AIDS as though that was like their conversion testimony. They bring people forward in the church and say, testify, I'm living with AIDS. God still loves me. You all need to protect yourselves. And that, that to me was the most empowering thing is to reclaim my faith rather than let others steal it from me. And I love that you decided ultimately to reclaim your faith because of a number of Muslim women. I mean, <laughs> you can't make that up. That's just, that's amazing. All right. Let's get to the core of what it is that you're hoping the reader gets out of this book. How do you look at the Bible and coincide it so deeply with justice? Yeah. So my subtitle is scripture is a handbook for resisting tyranny. It's not the way most of us have been taught it. So I start with Genesis. I go all the way through to Revelation. I hit on some key turning points in scripture to show how the narrative is truly about liberation from oppression and from tyranny. To do that, I creatively retell these key stories in the Bible uh, in an imaginative way. So for many people, that's what they like most about the book, because it kind of plunges them into a story and reimagines the story so that it becomes more alive to them. I also tell the story and then examine the, the biblical story in light of what's happening in America today with the presidency of Donald Trump, with the rise of white supremacy and Christian nationalism, with growing economic inequality and environmental devastation. So I very much apply those stories directly to what's happening today. And then I close with spiritual disciplines, strategies, and tactics that we can draw from the Bible to actually live out our faith and have courage to address the obstacles that we have in, in our way today, which are quite daunting. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about the way that you've written this book, I've read a lot of books about different ways to think about the Bible as a more progressive or as a person that's deconstructed his old faith or whatever. But the way that you do it, actually, I mean, it kind of felt like a friend was taking me on a walk. You know, it was taking me through a passage of the Bible, helping me to look at it with different eyes, and then some very practical things at the end. And I think a lot of us really need that right now. And as a person, like you, that's just deeply connected with justice and a desire for equality in our world. It was such a, a meaningful experience to go through your book. Now, you talk a lot about resistance. You even, if, am I wrong in saying that at the end of every chapter, there's a section about resistance, right? 
Sure is. So that couldn't be more of a foreign concept, I think, to a lot of Bible readers. Why is it that you've put it in there so strongly as a part of this book? Yeah, you know, there's one moment where I thought, well, maybe I won't use that word because I don't want, you know, people to be turned off by like the political sounding name of it. But the word is what it is, right? Like we we as Christians are called to resist the pharaohs and the Caesars of our day. And we see this in Exodus chapter one. Look back at that chapter. It's it's so amazing to me because that pivotal book of the Old Testament really begins with three sets of women resisting Pharaoh. The Hebrew midwives who I never heard preached on growing up, Miriam uh, and the daughter of Pharaoh. And they lead a revolution. They, they lead a resistance, a Stacey Abrams style resistance effort, if you will, to oust Pharaoh and to free their people. God walks in into the narrative in chapter two and says, behold, I'm the God who hears the groans of oppressed people and helps set them free. But I like to think of God as inspired by these women and by their, their cross-class, multi-faith, international coalition for justice and to prevent genocide. So that's the that's the fundamental story is that Jesus was speaking to people under Roman occupation, trying to help them figure out how to resist the brutality of the Roman Empire. I mean, they didn't just crucify Jesus, right? They crucified, you know, thousands of people. And, and the purpose of that was to intimidate people into submission. Um, Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who works with Reverend William Barber, has written a great book on poverty and the Bible and on scripture. And she talks about how uh, economic inequality in the Roman Empire, most, most of the people were at subsistence and starving, you know, so they were under brutal conditions. The book of Revelation, you know, is such a mystery to so many of us. But when you look at it through that lens, it becomes immediately clear that it also is a resistance book written in code so that the Christians wouldn't be further oppressed, but also written in images that can help people understand, yes, there is this brutality around us, but there's this also this potentiality of God's river running through the desert with the two trees beside it ending in hope, if we stay faithful and bear witness to that. So I try to, I think, tell a narrative arc that, you know, it's only eight chapters. It actually it sounds like it'd be a long book if I'm rewriting the Bible, right? But it's only like eight chapters. But kind of going across those key turning point stories, I think, can empower people to say, okay, here's the lens through which I'm to read the Bible. We follow a God who hears the cries of oppressed people. If I want to understand the Bible, I need to draw alongside those who are being oppressed. And I actually need to read the Bible with them, alongside them, and through their eyes if I'm truly going to understand it. Because the Bible was not written by the powerful of society. It was written by those who were struggling to come out of oppression and to establish a society where they too would not enslave others. That's how we're to understand the Bible. And once you do that, you'll start reading all of the stories in a whole new way. Absolutely. That is 100% true. Okay. Here's the question. It's a bit of a question that may not have an answer that will satisfy any of us. But why is it that we can look at the Bible through the lens that you're talking about? We follow this Jesus who is definitely anti-empire. And then here we are a couple thousand years later, and 
so many people who identify as Christian also identify themselves with empire. So many people focus, I mean, if you stand back and look at it, a lot of times Christians, especially American Christians, I'll just, I'll specify a little bit. American Christians often end up looking a lot more like the Pharisees than they do the disciples. How is it that we can be reading the same book and come up with such dynamically different conclusion? How did we get here and how did this happen? Yeah. So religion is powerful and for the powerful to stay in power, they have to hijack faith. And so what happened with Christianity is Constantine came along, you know, the Holy Roman Empire where Constantine embraced Christianity to be his imperial faith. And that corrupted Christianity. It became the religion of the state, the religion of empire, rather than the religion of resistance to empire. Up until that time, Christianity was a revolutionary group, you know, exhibiting revolutionary love and transforming the culture around it. And it was considered a threat by the Roman Empire. But then it got assumed and hijacked and co-opted. We see this happening in the Bible. It's an age-old story of humanity. We see it in the story of the golden calf, which I also write about. And I often go back to like, how did I see that story as a child? I was like, oh my gosh, as a child, I was like, look at what all God did. You know, God parted the Red Sea and now they're going to make a golden calf, right? So we have this God who wants to lead us into freedom, lead us into understanding that we don't have to live out of fear and scarcity, that we can live in love and abundance, we can share everything and that we'll all be so much better off. But often we turn from that in fear and we just want to be like the other nations. The other turning point is where the people go to God and ask for a king. God, give us a king, you know, and the prophet Samuel says, no, 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 you don't want a king. We're supposed to be a nation of priests. We're all supposed to approach God together and you know, share power. No, 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 we want a king. And God goes, well, okay, give them a king, but warn them, warn them what will happen. The next turning point is we see Solomon, and Solomon is the fulfillment of that warning that God gives. God is like, you install a king, and once you install that king, that king is going to take your land, take your daughters, take your sons, and send them off to war, and eventually you will be that king's slaves. And that's exactly what Solomon does. It's counterintuitive because often we're taught that Solomon was like the height of the Israelites, right? He was the best, he, Solomon in all his splendor. But that's a subtitle somebody else put on to that scripture. That's not what the people who wrote that book were trying to say. Uh, once we have that lens, you can kind of read through scripture for yourself and realize, oh, this is actually a critique of Solomon. Solomon built the temple with slave labor. How do you build a temple to a God who hates slavery using slave labor? Yes. It's <laughs> a lot. It can go on and on. It is a lot. It is a lot. But yeah. And again, it's just that we've we've been taught this narrative that is contrary to what you've just said in so many different ways. And even when you're talking about Solomon or King David or, you know, so many people in the Bible, in a lot of ways, what I was taught even as a little kid were things that now I would argue are anti-Christian or anti-Jesus because they're they're just highlighting the wrong space. They're highlighting the, the completely wrong space that elevates the self versus elevating the other. That's right. Yeah, when you get to the story of Jesus, Jesus is clearly at odds with the religious leaders of his day. And as I looked back at that and studied it further, I realized, yeah, the re leaders of his day were in cahoots with the Roman Empire. They were the ones 
that had been sort of absorbed into that apparatus. And Jesus is pushing back with an ethic of love. So I guess where I was going with all that too is it's an age-old human story that all of our faith traditions, I believe, have at their core a justice liberative message honoring human dignity. And what happens is the powers of the world try to hijack those. They need to be able to control our very thinking. They need to control our spirituality because it is that that gives impetus and courage and hope to resist. I absolutely have to hijack it. So if you look at the movement to end apartheid in South Africa, the civil rights movement, the Dorothy Day labor movement, like all of those movements were also powered by faith. And so what can happen to us is we can kind of recoil and say, ah, I'm just going to chuck the Bible out. I'm just going to chuck the faith out. But what I have found leading a network of 50,000 religious leaders around the country and really pushing ourselves to resist voter suppression and to work for the rights of LGBTQ people. As I do that, I find these stories give me courage. They, they ground me. Um, they teach me how to resist. And to give one quick example, I was doing one rally and the words remember just kept coming back to me. Remember, remember, remember you were once slaves, therefore. And I was like, why is this echoing in my head? As I went back and looked at it, I realized it really was the cornerstone of scripture in the sense that it's the most oft repeated command in the Bible is to remember. And I took that to mean history, like really go back and look at your history so you can understand where we are in history right now in terms of white supremacy in particular. And then you'll have the tools to start dismantling it. I realized there was so much I didn't know. I was not doing the spiritual practice of exploring history and doing that from the side of people who had been oppressed. Once I started to do that, I started to see kind of what we were up against and where we needed to go. So there are a lot of disciplines, I think, in the Bible and a lot of strategies that can actually help us in addition to our just being able to help people understand who they are and God and that God has a different vision for us than what the Southern Baptist Convention or what Christian nationalism are trying to teach us. You alluded to in Revelation the idea of hope with the the river and the and the trees. Sometimes in the midst of the chaos of our world right now, it's really difficult to find any sort of hope because every time we turn around, it just seems like another very difficult thing hits us in the face. So how would you describe hope today? And this is the question I ask everybody to end the podcast. So where do you see hope in our society, in our world, in our faith circles? Or how would you even define hope today? Hmm. That is such a great question. So the thing I keep with me is that hope is not a prediction of how things will go. It's not a prognostication. It is a determination to make the world different than it is. So one thing that keeps me going is knowing, one, I'm in solidarity with so many people all over this country that are working for justice. Two, I'm also in solidarity with our ancestors, our spiritual ancestors who also faced impossible odds and prevailed. We're standing on their shoulders and we're also walking in the footsteps of those who will come after us you know, if you can collapse time in that way. So we're part of a long cloud of witnesses, as the Bible calls it, that, you know, we're marching after and marching into the future with us. So that's what gives me hope is the power of people organizing and the truth that God has given us that in the end, equality and justice 
prevail over and against the ways in which the world wants to dominate others. Special thanks to Jennifer Butler for being on the show this week. For more on what she's up to, you can check out the website faithinpubliclife.org. Also, you can find her all over social media. Make sure you support the work that she is engaged with. And of course, go and get your copy of Who Stole My Bible today. Just stop the podcast. You've heard enough. Just go get the book. It's worth it. You won't regret it. I promise you. Next week on the show, I'm super excited. I am going to introduce to you some new friends of mine that I am starting a new partnership venture with. You're not going to want to miss it, so we'll tell you all about that next week. Of course, if you want to support the Jesus Never Ran podcast, make sure you subscribe to the show or on Apple Podcasts. Follow it. Write us a review and give a five-star rating. It's the best way for people to find out more about what we are doing here at Jesus Never Ran. Till next time. Keep walking.